Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Father, thank you for your kindness to us and for loving us. Thank you. Um, that we can trust that you are sovereign over the nations and that nothing we experience, even in a year like this one, is a surprise to you, but everything is known to you and still you are working things out for our good and for your glory. Would you help us to trust that, to trust your sovereignty and your goodness? And now as we open your word today, we come needing to hear from you. So we pray that your spirit would prepare our hearts to receive it, that we would be able to hear where we need to be challenged and be comforted where we need comfort, and that you, Lord, would speak to us through your word, and so we lift this time and our hearts to you in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, it, it's been a week since we saw each other last, and it's been a heck of a week, so take a deep breath. Um, it... it probably shouldn't have been surprising to us this week to learn that our nation is deeply divided, um, that people think differently, and, and that see, and people see the world very differently from each other. And so there's a mix, and some of, most of you are probably feeling some mix of emotions too, whether it's relief or frustration or joy or, or exasperation or weariness, where there's this mix that just seems to be weighing on us. And these things, these divides in our country aren't new either. In 1865, Lincoln, in his second inaugural address, which is is etched in stone in the Lincoln Memorial, was reflecting on the Civil War and said, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces, but let us judge not that we not be judged. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. And 2020 has been tough. And yesterday, it was refreshing at least to walk through our neighborhood and see some of the relief and vibrancy of the city abounds in people's steps. And, And also, though, we know that we are a very diverse church, and, and that means that not everyone was filled with joy this weekend, and that we're all subject, no matter what relief we get, into anxiety and fear and worry and cynicism, and, and, and so there's this mix that goes on within us. And now we, as a church and as followers of Jesus, will continue to pray for our governing leaders, and we'll pray for President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris, and my hope is that we as a nation will be able to take a collective breath and that character and integrity and civility will prevail in the public square. But thank God that the church has hope beyond the kingdoms of earth. It doesn't mean these things aren't important or that fears and concerns aren't real, but it does mean that our ultimate hope isn't tied strictly here. And so today, we're going to work to be reminded together and move toward that hope. What we see as we continue in our study in Romans today is a call to welcome one another in harmony. So let's read in Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 2. 
Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. Not to, or, <laughs> I'm going to start again because I was going to say not to build him up. That is the exact opposite of this message. <laughs> let's, let's start again. All right. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of, of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the, the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name and again it is written rejoice O Gentiles with his people and again praise the Lord all you Gentiles and let all the peoples extol him and Isaiah again says the root of Jesse will come even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so over the last few weeks, we've seen in Romans chapter 14 a call to the weak and to the strong into a divided church in Rome. And all of this is under chapter 12 begins this section of the letter where it says to us that for all who are followers of Jesus, if you are in Christ, then there's a call to us, to every one of us, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so this whole section shows us what it looks like to be transformed by the Spirit of God, that, it, that following Jesus changes everything. It changes our relationship to God, our relationship to his church, as we are now part of one member with many parts in the body that work together for good. We, it changes our relationship to enemies, as we're called to love those who hate us and want to destroy us, and, and this countercultural call to Christians. It changes our relationship to governing authorities and, and to everyone around us as we bear this burden of love. It changes our relationship to the day that we live in. As we saw the call, wake up. It's dark, it's night, but the day is coming and Christ will return. And then chapter 14, it applies, Paul applies all this into a very specific situation in the church in Rome that was a massive ethnic and cultural divide between Jewish and Gentile Christians. It came out in some specifics about eating meat or wine, and drinking wine that were sold in the marketplace that may or may not have been used in idolatrous ceremonies and may or may not have been clean according to kosher law. And so some wanted to eat, some didn't. And so it, it was this massive divide in the church. And that's what Paul speaks into, that we've been distilling principles out for us. Even though we don't face the same issues, we face all kinds of ways that the church divides over issues that are not sin. And so we've been looking at how do we handle these matters of conscience, and we've seen that the call to the weak in faith and the strong in faith is similar but different. That in, in, this is not weak and strong in status, this is in faith, and so weak in faith are those who struggle to rely on the finished work of Christ alone for their salvation and, and are adding other requirements back in that, they, that their conscience won't allow them to be totally free, while the strong in faith 
are, are able to experience the freedom of Christ and not, without those extra restrictions. This isn't, again, to sin. These are, nego- these are matters of conscience. And so Paul says to the weak, stop being so judgmental of the strong. You don't have to manage other people's consciences. Leave the judgment up to God. And to the strong, he says, stop abandoning the weak. You cut them out of community because it's more convenient. Instead, you're called to welcome them, but not to argue. And so now he ties this all together for us in chapter 15 and shows us that the call we have is to welcome one another in harmony. I love the fact that he uses this word, in harmony, a musical term that gets introduced for us because it strikes such a beautiful note. I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> it strikes such a beautiful, well, or chord, um, that of, of exactly what, it, of what is important for us to gain from what he's saying. When people sing together, I've, I've been amazed. So our, our band has, has gotten much better. Redemption Hill is, is just over nine years old, and, and our music wasn't great early on. I'll be honest, nobody in here was part of our music team early on, so I'll speak plainly. <laughs> um, there, was, there were a couple of Sundays that Alyssa, we got home and from the, when we first started, and Alyssa was like, and if you don't hit a home run every week, this church is never getting off the ground. And I was like, ah, oh, this is not the kind of pressure my, my heart needed. Um, but, but, you know, I can remember that there, weren't, there wasn't an ability to discern between singing different notes. And so, like, our vocalists, we would usually have two, and they would all, both just sing the melody line the whole way through of, of every song. Now, for you, if you aren't musical, you may have no idea what that means, but that is not what our team is doing now. And I've been amazed listening to our vocalists have meetings and the talent that we have and people with training and that understand how different notes can be sung together that are hitting different pitches where not everybody should sing the same melody line. And by having different harmonies coming in alongside each other, it actually creates a more beautiful whole that is you're able to understand better than if everybody's trying to sing the same. This is what Paul is calling us to, that we are all going to sing different notes. It's the same way as saying there's, a, there's one body with a lot of parts. There's, there's one song we're singing to glorify God, but, but our lives and our words and our actions are going to hit different notes along the way, and God is able to use that in perfect harmony Along, alongside each other. So how is it possible to live in harmony right now? Well, I think this, is, this isn't unique to Romans. It's something that, is, that others pull into. In, in J.R.R. Tolkien wrote a whole creation myth and background to Middle Earth and the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit series that's called the Silmarillion. And he talks about creation as being a song. And so there's all of these characters that are interacting in this, contributing toward this beautiful, glorious whole as, as the world is created. But there's one who's wicked, named Melkor, and he tries to throw it all off with a dissonant note. But even that note, the, char- the God character in, this, in Tolkien's myth, is able to work that in like jazz and make it all more beautiful and more glorious in the end. And at one point, God says to Melkor, who tried to throw everything off, no theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me, nor can any alter the music in my despite. For he that attempteth this shall prove but mine instrument in devising in the devising of things more wonderful which he himself hath not imagined. And so even the dissonant notes can be worked by God in perfect harmony. Sometimes God can use what seems dissonant to us to create something more beautiful in ways we can't 
understand, that we could never have a concept of, but we need to remember that nothing escapes his sovereignty and nothing escapes his goodness. This is why in Romans 8 we read about the love of God that can never be taken from us and that there's no condemnation for anybody who's in Christ Jesus. And it tells us that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For, the purpose, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so God will work things for our good, and still, it's hard to remember that. It's easy to get distracted because things get hard. Life doesn't go the way we want it to. And remember the situation in Rome. Don't forget, this was an, under an oppressive government. There, there was hostility toward Christians and Jewish people. There, the Christians had no place or no voice in society. There were deep divisions in the church, and there was anxiety about whether this fledgling movement could even hold together. And so the difficulties we face now have different names and history attached and particulars attached, but they aren't as new as we think. So we have to be careful to guard our heart as we hear this call to welcome each other in harmony. But, as Vincent van Gogh said, in the end we shall have had enough of cynicism, skepticism, and humbug. We shall want to live more musically. If there's... If there's a concept I wish our city could grasp right now, it's that. In the end, we, we will have had enough cynicism. I know it feels like DC can never get its fill, but we will, shall all want to live more musically. So how do, we over, how do we welcome one another in harmony right now? Well, in this passage, there are seven calls to us, seven ways to work toward welcoming one another in harmony. First, do good to build people up. This is what we read in, right in verse 2. Um, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, we need to be a little bit careful here because at first glance, this can sound like we just need to do whatever is going to make our neighbor happy. Like, this, isn't this like man-pleasing? Like, whatever is going to make somebody happy. So that means their happiness is going to control our actions and our success. And I don't think it's saying that at all. Luther said here, and he actually began his treatise on Christian liberty or on the liberty of a Christian by saying, a Christian is the most free, a lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is also a, a most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. So he's saying is, yes, you're free, but this is what we saw last week. If you experience the freedom of walking in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you have been given that freedom, not for your own self-indulgence, but to lay yourself down self-sacrificially for the good of others, to build others up along the way. And so this, this idea of pleasing your neighbor really, I think, is best summed up as saying, do good to build somebody up. And we've already seen this in chapter 12 as we were called to love people around us and to love our enemies, and, and, and Jesus' call to love our enemies is hard. It's, that is one of the most difficult applications of the gospel in life. And there's times when we pull back on that, and we, we have way, all kinds of ways that we, that we try to find excuses out of it and try to say, like, well, I know Jesus said to love my enemies, but he doesn't, not that one. But Jesus didn't leave that kind of wiggle room. Paul didn't leave that kind of wiggle room for us here. Scripture doesn't leave that kind of wiggle room. Someone can be wrong or uninformed or ignorant or even want bad things to happen to you. But if you follow Jesus, you are still called to love them and to do good and to pray for them. That doesn't mean 
that you continue to be abused if somebody's abusive. That's, that's not what it's saying, but, but it doesn't say that we're ever freed to kindle hatred in our hearts and, and drink deeply of the poison, the bitter poison of hatred against others. And what we've got in, our, in front of us right now is that partisan divides that we see in front of us that have divided this country represent real problems and real issues. They're, it's not like, like these are unimportant matters, and still we are called to love. And that doesn't mean that you have to be a centrist in the mushy middle or stand outside of the fray politically. You can have, still have very strong opinions, and the call is the same. We never escape the call to love our enemies, which at least starts by casting their perspectives in the best light possible. And so what does it mean to love your enemy and do good to all? Well, back in chapter 12, he talked about this, where he said, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. The same language back in chapter 12. This isn't new in the letter. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, chapter 12 is focused largely outside of the church, saying as people try to persecute you and come against you, this is how the church ought to be postured toward them. Do good, show love, bless them, and pray for them. So how much more inside the church family? Chapter 15, we're talking about inside the family of a local church, saying, saying you've got to live in harmony with one another. Do good for, uh, to each other. Build each other up. And, and the call to the weak and the strong, remember, was, was stop tearing each other down. That's the language. Don't do what pursues, what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Stop tearing down and destroying the work of God. And so instead, do good and build up the work of God in each other. And so there's a, a mutuality in life together in a church family that, that is, is necessary for us to understand, and that is a needed corrective in the society around us that, that releases us from any kind of mutuality. And so does that mean that, that people that do wrong get a free pass? Absolutely not. Sometimes the, what it means to love someone is to tell the truth. We have to speak truth in love, and we're called toward each other in harmony to do good, to build each other up, and not tear down the work of God. So first, do good to build people up. Second, Follow the example of Jesus Christ. In verse 2, it says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So Paul is quoting Psalm 69, which Jesus applies to himself as well. And, and he's saying here, we're not being called to anything that Jesus hasn't gone and done before us. And so this is a Psalm of David, where David talks about being hated for God's sake, and that, that those who hated God hated him as well. And Jesus quoted that for himself and now Paul is saying this is the example for us that if anyone ever had the the reason to exert their own rights it was Jesus but he laid himself down following the will of his father and so this is what he expands in in Philippians chapter 2 where he calls the church to similar harmony and unity together and he says to them there have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the good news that we call the gospel. That Christ, God incarnate, gave up the rights he has as God, has God to, in order to take our place and, and was hated by those he had made. That he took our place for our sin and was killed on a cross and by passing into suffering and through suffering into death, God raised him from death to life and, brought, and gave him glory so that everyone will bow the knee to Christ in the end as their king. The call that Jesus has to those who follow him is to take up our crosses daily, to give up everything we are in order to follow him. It's costly for every one of us, but in in giving up ourselves, we'll gain life in him. And so we have to give up all other identities to embrace him as supreme. It doesn't mean that you're not involved in other things in your life or that you lose everything you are in your life or that you're wiped clean somehow. You are everything that God has made you to be, but but Christ becomes the primary identity that governs everything else. And so to the church in Rome, he's looking at this saying, listen, you're called to lay yourself down like Christ did because he is primary now, even over your sensibilities and over your ethnic divides. The Jewish Christians in Rome didn't stop being Jewish. The Gentile Christians in Rome didn't stop being Gentiles. But he's saying together, your identity in Christ is primary and the others are secondary. So follow the example of Christ. Third, rely on God's word. So in verse four, it says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so there's a call here. How do we pursue harmony with one another? Well, rely on scripture as our guide. That we far too often are more concerned with people's opinions about scripture than we are with scripture speaking for itself. Let's get into God's word and allow it to speak for itself. There's, it gives us instruction and encouragement and hope. So instruction, we've got to realize that the whims and ebbs and flows of the world around us and of our nation are never going to stop changing. They're never going to be consistent and they'll never settle on actual truth. But, but God's word will instruct us on what holiness looks like and it's the source of life for us and it is unchanging. And it gives us encouragement that we need a constant reminder that, that whatever happens around us, that the triune God is, in, is sovereign and good so that, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit aren't panicking about what's happening in our nation. God knows and he sees and he is good and evil is doomed and justice will prevail in the end. And that's where we get hope. Our hope is not in princes and chariots or elections and policies. As important as those things are, they're temporal. And and there are no human solutions that will cure everything that ails us. We have been trying to do government as human beings for thousands of years. What makes us think that in one election, we're going to solve it? It's not going to happen. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we don't work for the best we can and vote in the best way we can, that loves our neighbor in the best way that we can. Absolutely, and that we should bring the values of Christ's kingdom into this world now and long for the good and the welfare of our city and nation. Yes and amen, but don't put your hope in it. We sing this, that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. And so let's rely on God's word together. Let it speak, and where it is clear, we need to be clear, and where it is not, we need to be careful of overstepping the bounds of God's word. Rely on it. Fourth, be empowered by God's grace to focus on God's glory. We welcome another in harmony as we are empowered by God's grace to focus on God's glory. So it goes on in verse 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God's grace to us is his encouragement and to give us endurance. That's the fuel that gives us the ability to live in harmony together, is remembering who God is and what he's done and the grace he's shown us and what we've seen throughout Romans, that none of us can earn any of, us, any of this, that it's, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how loving God is. And to know that, that as he says in Romans chapter 3, when he says, all of you have sinned and fall short of God's glory. That's saying that in the divides of Jew and Greek that no single ethnic group has it cornered. Everybody needs Jesus. That, and so for us, that we can hear every one of us needs God's grace. Whether you are a, Republicans need Jesus. Democrats need Jesus. That, and you don't escape that if you're like, well, I'm a libertarian. Great. You still need Jesus. Like, whatever, whatever other stripe you want to color yourself to say that you're not part of the two-party system, fine. You need Jesus. Anarchist, you need Jesus. You say, I'm apolitical and I don't fall into your boxes, you still need Jesus. We've seen this in Romans 5, that we are either in Adam or we are in Christ. And it's only by God's grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, that we have any hope of salvation and any hope of being declared righteous. And so we either rest in Christ's finished work or we stand before God on our own merits. And if you stand in your own, you will be crushed. And so if we really believe that, then it should be easier for us to extend that grace to our brothers and sisters because all of a sudden our pride falls away. We can no longer think that we are justified in our own actions and our own beliefs and our own partisan ideologies. And instead, we can realize, there, I have nothing good to offer on my own, but God has still loved me. And so maybe that person that I have a problem with is lovable as well. It says here literally, one, one mind and one voice. That this is what the church is called to together. That, that as we think properly together, rooted in God's word, that we raise our voice together to the glory of God. And that's the ultimate goal, is to glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Division in the church is a statement against the power of the gospel in that people. But the unity of the church, especially in a church that has a diversity of ethnicity and ideology and opinions and sensibilities, when enemies, when the chasms that divide us are covered by the cross and enemies are united at the table of the king, that is a, a sign of the power of the gospel to do what nothing else can. 
It shows the beauty of what Christ has done. And, and that doesn't mean we're called to be the same. We're, we're not called to raise, again, this is in harmony together. That means we're hitting different notes. And so it's not sameness, but it is harmony and unity in that. Tony Evans says this. He says, unity is not a matter of sameness, but of oneness. Like a quilt with various colors and patterns blended into a beautiful whole, the body of Christ blends different people together into a beautiful array of redeemed lives. Unity doesn't wash out our differences. It combines them to form something greater. Church, this is one of the most difficult aspects of the last several months, is that we haven't been able to be together as a church since March. I don't remember how many months ago that is now. I don't want to do the math. It feels like it could have been eight months or ten years. It's been a long time. And when you're isolated, it's easier to demonize people. When you don't see people face to face, it's easier to cast them as worse than they are. It's easier to read bad intentions into them or to assume things of them. It's harder when we're face to face, when we can look each other in the eye, when, when we can give each other a hug and put our arm around each other and pray for each other, when even just a, a passing look and smile can mean so much of, as far as human connection. We are embodied beings and physical contact and physicality matters and, and we have lost a major element of life as a church together through this stretch and it's painful because this has been a hard stretch to lose it. And so right now, when we're in the wake of another divisive election, it's brutal to not be able to have the church together so that we can see people and look them in the eye and, and welcome each other in love. It's hard to keep villainizing people when you come to the Lord's table and break bread together. And we need to be careful. Social media says a lot about us and where our focus lies and about where our passion lies. Remember that we're empowered by God's grace, yes, to welcome one another in harmony, but what's the end purpose? To focus on God's glory. What is the main glory that your communication outwardly has been showing lately? I see a lot of calls to vote. That's good, voting's important. I see a lot of opinions about what people should be doing or shouldn't be doing in the midst of a pandemic, which you're free to. Do you ever focus on Jesus? Are you ever focused on God's glory and spreading the message of a greater kingdom? What does your stream say? Or the people that respond to you? This last week, I posted a couple of things that I thought were terribly boring posts that were quoting Jesus, and, and one of them is something I've, I think I've already, I mean, I know I've preached here, saying, saying, for a Christian to feel politically homeless makes sense. No single party captures the fullness of Christ's kingdom ethics. The big question is, what will do the most good for the most people? How can I best love my neighbor with my vote? I felt like that was pretty boring. And I got private messaged by people that called me a Marxist. For that, I, I've not read everything that Marx has written, I will confess to you, and I know that we're in D.C., and so some of you might have, and we have a church filled with political science scholars that have 
degrees in these kinds of things and have devoted your lives to government. That's not all of us, but there's, we have a greater share of that than many churches just because of where we're at. And so some of you have a greater, greater understanding than I do of what Marxism really is and what Karl, the ideologies of Karl Marx, but, but not having read everything he's written and just dabbled my toe in a little bit and been like, that's good. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think I need to take this any further and spend any more time in this direction. I don't think that I've ever been exposed to a point where Marx says we need to have a posture toward governance that does the greatest good and loves our neighbor best. I could be wrong, but Jesus does say that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so it seems like it's a pretty easy correlation to say that Jesus would say that with our vote, we are supposed to use that as a way to love our neighbor. That's the two great commandments that everything falls under, love God and love your neighbor. And so to the people that private messaged me as a Marxist and said collectivism is a Marxist ideology, I just have been a little baffled. Uh, similarly, you know, he posted something about, about loving your enemies. And there was some really good and helpful dialogue with people, members of our church, wrestling with the difficulty of that calling, because that's hard. That is a hard calling. But again, I had some DMs, which I guess I'm glad these are in like private messages, because that means they're not out there for the world to see, which is probably better. But telling me that I was standing against the victims of oppression and silencing the voices of those who had experienced oppression. And I, and I, again, I just don't, it's hard for me to say that Jesus does that, and nobody said that people shouldn't speak up or that oppression should go on or that we shouldn't speak truth where there's power, but, but right and left right now, even the words of Jesus, when put out simply and plainly, are being interpreted with partisan lenses. The church, we've got to be careful about jamming him into the, the molds of the patterns of this world. They won't hold the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And this is not merely my call to you, church. This is Jesus' call to his people to love our enemies. And, and yes, we're called to love our neighbor in every time and in every circumstance. And I agree that trite Christian platitudes can be damaging right now and unhelpful, that people can manipulate and, and put up a fancy, pretty-looking meme with a Bible verse, and it looks, and it, it'll, it'll do something other than what was intended by Scripture. But, but throughout the history of the church, those who are suffering most have clung to the kingship of Jesus, looking ahead and believing that whatever we face now, that, that there will come a time when he will bring justice and avenge suffering, that he is the one who is sovereign over everything, and that the glory of God is something we will share in the end. And that isn't trite. That doesn't minimize suffering. That gives us a light to hope for and, and an ability to hear God's voice when we are walking through death's dark valley. Because we have confidence that Christ has gone before us and passed through death and offers life on the other side. And so when the world is too much to bear, we turn and stand with the king who is not up for election. God's grace will free our hearts along the way then to focus on his glory more than our immediate circumstances and accept one another as family. Again, not that the things around us are unimportant, but they're not of supreme importance. And that leads to the fifth, is accept one another as brothers and sisters. In verse 7, therefore welcome one another to what standard? As Christ welcomed, has welcomed you for the glory of God. Thank God that Jesus welcomes us 
And as we said in Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we have certainly sinned against him. And so our, our propensity to speak past each other and fail to listen infects our nation right now and spills too often into the church. And I know that this stuff is still close, but we need to, we need to be able to look at some of these things clearly. And so I, we need to ask, like, are you listening to your brothers and sisters in Christ as regards even this election? When, when the sitting president is the embodiment of so much of what so many people fear, where there is real trauma in racial injustice and real trauma in sexual abuse and aggressive manipulation that, that is too much to take and, and rhetoric has stoked a smoldering hatred of fringe groups and changed public discourse in our nation, are you critical of brothers and sisters who are, who are broken by that or are you willing to listen and to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn? And for others, there are moral issues and policies that are flat deal breakers, that are non-starters in the discussion of who to vote for. Do you paint everybody on a certain political side of the aisle with the same broad brush that someone's vote becomes an indictment on their character when you haven't gotten into the nuance and complexity of what they're considering? Can we at least start by listening to each other? Michael Ware is a political analyst and Christian, he's, he says, he, he frees us a little bit here and says, your vote is not an unmediated expression of your identity. Your vote is a choice between options you did not choose yourself. You need, I want you to hear that again. The rest of it, he explains it, but hear this. Your vote is not an unmediated expression of your identity. Everything in our system would tell you otherwise right now but it is a choice between options you did not choose yourself. If you view your vote as an unmediated, pure expression of your will, it can be debilitating. Whether you're a Christian or not, simply as a matter of fact that we have consciences and convictions, and to view political choices in such a way threatens the integrity of the human person. Moreover, for Christians for whom faithfulness is both means and end, to view your vote as a totalizing statement of who you are, what you believe, inevitably leads to disintegration or quietism, which may just be one path to disintegration. Christians are necessarily homeless politically, at least to some extent. And we ought to be more united with people who are within the family of God than people who share political sensibilities with us. Now, that's true, that we should commit to do good in the world now, but be careful. Esau McCulley, who just released a brilliant book, Reading While Black, that I highly recommend, says, said this week, my prayer is that whoever wins should discover that the church is their biggest ally when they do right and their most relentless critic when they do evil, especially as it relates to the most vulnerable. I'm hoping for moral courage and steady-eyed focus on the kingdom of God. Yes and amen. And listen, I only spend this much time on politics because it's on our mind, right? Like, it's inescapable in this town this week, for good and bad. And it shows some of the deepest fissures in our nation right now, but it's not like these are the only divides in the church. This is what's in the news this week. And I mean, gosh, if nothing else, I hope that over the next couple of years, it can be in the news just a little bit less. But what we, we have seen the call to all of us if you're weak, stop judging your brothers and sisters. Where you're strong, stop tearing down, brothers and sisters. We're brought together across these divides so that our voices and lives can build one another up and contribute to the song God is writing in perfect harmony. Sometimes a brother or sister might seem too shrill 
but maybe God's just called them a soprano. Maybe they're too quiet, and you don't realize that they're supposed to sit out this stanza because there's another one where their voice is needed, and they need to have the energy to be able to sing. Or maybe you think they're too settled, they're not riled up enough. I have never seen a big bass giving the foundation for a choir that's, that looks riled up. And maybe they're the ones that are just providing the smooth and steady foundation so that everyone else can shine. We don't know how God is working in our brothers and sisters, but let him work and accept one another as family. Sixth, participate in God's mission. I love that, that this is where Paul turns next, because he goes on, I tell you, so I was, we were going to stop here, but I just saw this section, we had to continue into it, because this four in verse eight means it's an explanation of what he has said. So therefore, the application, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is what the ultimate call in this passage is, welcome each other for the glory of God. Why? For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm promises to give into the patriarchs and and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. He goes on to quote four Old Testament quotations that I would love to get into, but we, we're, we just don't have time tonight. So you can look into these and see where they're coming from, but I love that this is where Paul goes next because he's focused in chapter 14 on very specific divisions in the church in Rome, applying those, the gospel to those very specific things and getting into something that was dividing the church. And then in order to close the discussion, where does he turn? He doesn't turn by getting more specific. He turns at the end in reminding the, the church, remember the bigger picture of what's going on here. To the Jews and the nations here, the Gentile Christians in Rome, he says, hey, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. Why? Because Christ came to die for the circumcised. He fulfilled everything in the Old Testament, everything in the covenants God had made. He came to fulfill all of the promises that you were waiting for. So if you are, he's saying to the Jewish Christians in Rome, follow Jesus. Remember, he did everything that you were waiting for, every promise fulfilled. And what was one of the, part of that promise? That the word of God would go to the nations, that it would extend to the nations, to the Gentiles, and so Gentiles, remember, he's saying, remember, Christ died for your Jewish brothers and sisters so that the word could come to you as well. Why are we supposed to welcome one another as Christ welcomed us? Because Christ gave himself up for us, every one of us. This isn't platitudes to remind people that God is in control and Jesus is king and there's more at stake than our current circumstances. It is saying this is the hope that we cling to. That, yes, it's good and right to look at the situation around us and lament where lament is needed and weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn and to turn to God and lament. But, but turning to God and lament isn't just despair. Paul Miller says, A lament grieves that the world is unbalanced. It grieves the gap between reality and God's promise. It, it believes in a God who is there, who can act in time and space and doesn't drift into cynicism or unbelief, but engages God passionately with what's wrong. And so we can lament even as we keep pointing to greater hope and calling and pleading with people to join us in the family of God and remember what he's done in Christ. But the more we stay focused on the ultimate mission of Christians, the freer we will to be to invest in our lives for the good of all people. It's when we lose sight of the mission that God has called us to and lose sight of the advance 
advance of the kingdom of Jesus Christ that we turn against each other and start infighting because we don't have anything better to do. If we're, if we're focused on the mission Christ is calling us to and we're seeing God work and extend his kingdom and bringing people to salvation and the spirit pouring out and changing and transforming people's lives through our city, then we're not going to have time to nitpick at each other because we're going to be supporting each other and cheerleading each other and, and heading on the same way and lifting each other up when we're wounded because the mission becomes primary and that is what makes it possible for us to actually stay together in harmony. Seventh, Be filled with Holy Spirit hope. So it ends with verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Scripture gets repetitive sometimes, and it does here. When it gets repetitive, it's because because it's trying to help us catch something. So the word here, hope, may the God of all hope Fill you with joy and peace in believing. Why? So that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So be filled with the Holy Spirit who will lead us and drive us to hope. Now remember, in Scripture, we've seen this earlier in Romans, in Scripture, hope is not wishful thinking. That's how we use the word hope. Like I could say, I hope the Bears figure out this NFL season. I have no reason to believe that's going to happen. You could say, I hope that COVID comes to an end. It will eventually. But gosh, you hear the projections and like my hope that it was going to come to an end by the end of 2020 seems pretty slim. Uh, yeah, that it's wishful thinking of saying, gosh, this would be great if we were able to be together as a church and, and we didn't have to wear masks everywhere and that we, if we were able to, to, to step into life in its fullness again, that would be amazing. But I don't, we don't know what's going to happen. We could say, I hope that the next election goes my way. You realize this, that on Saturday, I feel like it was like, what, around 11 a.m. when fireworks started going off in the neighborhood and people honking horns and Capitol Hill lit up with with a response to the, the election being, being projected. And within 10 minutes, I felt like the news we were watching was turning toward 2024. And I was like, can we just not? <laughs> like, can we, th- th- now? Like, can you, can you give us a, a day? Can you give us a week? Can we, can we, like, get to the next 73 days or whatever it is and at least, like, take a breath a little and you're already talking about 2024? Are, are you serious? And people are already staking their hopes on what's going to happen in the next presidential election before this one's even actually settled out. Well, that's not a settled confidence. That's wishful thinking. This is the same way that kids are around the holidays or their birthday where they're like, oh, I hope I get the Red Robin BB gun, pump action BB gun. And you're like, you're going to shoot your eye out, kid. Like this is, it's, it's this hope. There's no, it's not a, it's not a, this is settled. It's, it's man, I hope this comes through. I, I'm, I'm wishing that it'll be the case. That is not hope in scripture. When it's saying, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope, it's not saying, may the God of maybe fill you with joy and peace because you're filled with wishful thinking. That, that is not biblical. That isn't at all what's being communicated here. Hope in Scripture is a settled confidence in what we know to be true. 
It's not a giddy denial of painful reality. It's not shrugging indifference to what's going on around us, but it's saying that it is a belief that in the midst of everything that we face, that Jesus is who he said he is. See, this is why the, the historicity of Christianity is so vitally important. If Christ lived and died and was raised from death to life and ascended to the throne in heaven, then everything we believe has its foundation and nothing else can stand against it and nothing else should ever sway us from following Jesus as our king. If that didn't happen, then we have nothing to stand on. We have no hope to base anything on because what we've bought into is a moralizing myth that we will never live up to the standard of the self-sacrificial king. And so we're... What, it, if you believe in Jesus, you're saying, this really happened. Yeah, I don't believe in an idea. I follow a person. When Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, he was saying we would follow, spend our entire life following him and, and learning from him because he is the one that is lowly and gentle and will, and will give us a burden that is light and easy and he'll give us rest for our souls. And so we worship Jesus because he lived and he died in our place for our sin, was raised from death to life, and he rules and reigns now and will return to make all things new. And so our hope is not wishful thinking for what might come. Our hope is rooted in the reality of the resurrection that proves that he has power over death and that nothing can stop him when he comes back. And so when it's saying, may the God of all hope fill you with joy and peace in believing, it's saying you have all the proof you could ever want. The foundation is there. And, and now, because of that, we're freed to actually experience joy that isn't tied to circumstance. We're freed to experience peace that passes any understanding. And the power of the Holy Spirit moves through us to return our eyes to hope no matter what is happening around us. This is what it means then when it says, how do we welcome one another in harmony? Well, if our eyes are fixed on Christ and we are moved by the Holy Spirit to, to overflow in hope, then that means the overflow of the hope within us is going to start to get contagious on the people around us and the people of God will have their hearts lifted to joy and peace and believing as they find hope in Jesus as well. And so this is what it means to be followers of Jesus together is to welcome one another in harmony, to build each other up and follow the example of Jesus, relying on God's word and empowered by God's grace for his glory, accepting one another in as brothers and sisters and, 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 and participating in the mission of God together, that we get to be his vessels in this place, at this time, in this moment, it's been entrusted to us. And so the spirit fills us with hope that God will actually move. So don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your, our mind that, then, that we can welcome one another as family even when we disagree and that actually the more that we disagree and still can see the gospel reconcile us, the more beautiful it shows the gospel to be. When we can live in harmony together, weak and strong across ethnic and partisan and cultural and sensibility divides, it shows the beauty and power of Jesus when we raise our voices in harmony. So let's take that calling seriously. And don't ever let the forces outside of the church divide that which Christ has bought with his blood. And let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us a family as crazy and as dysfunctional as it can be. And we pray that you'd help us to have our eyes 
fixed on you, to have our hearts settled in hope. We pray that you'd help us to embrace each other and realize that when we see brothers and sisters in Jesus singing different notes, that it's contributing to the song that you're writing even when we can't find the melody ourselves. Give us the confidence and hope that you use our lives to contribute and to be a part of what you're doing. And I pray for those who aren't walking with you that you would open their eyes and hearts to embrace Jesus and to find hope today. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.